Good evening, everybody. Welcome to night number four. Going fast, isn't it? Exciting? Gathering steam. So tonight, we're going to talk about unfolding the revelation. Last night, we talked about the war, the war behind all wars. That great controversy, that battle between Jesus and Satan. Those two choices, right? You only have two. You're either with God or you're with Satan. So tonight we're going to unfold the revelation. We're going, to, we're going to continue to unfold this story of revelation, this revelation of Jesus Christ. Before we start any study of the scripture, let's open with a word of prayer. Dear glorious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for this beautiful day. Thank you for the gift of life. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come together and worship you in freedom and liberty. Lord, we ask you now that you send your Holy Spirit, send your holy angels to be with us. Lift us up. Send us a blessing. Open our hearts and minds as we study your word so we can become closer to you. In Jesus' holy, precious name we pray. Amen. During World War II, the American military was looking for ways to securely communicate sensitive information. Information they didn't want to get in the enemy's hands. It was information they didn't want intercepted. And they didn't want the enemy to understand it whatsoever. So, they enlisted Native Americans, Navajo Indians, who communicated American military secrets in their own language. While the Navajo senders and the Navajo receivers could understand every communication, the Japanese listening in had no idea what they were talking about. Think about that. It it, it must have sounded like gibberish to them on the radios when they were listening in. Their best code breakers, and the Japanese were tremendous code breakers. Their best code breakers were unable to decipher the code. The Navajo language was indecipherable to all but a select few. In fact, the Japanese never knew till many years after the war, until this story came out. Unfortunately, it seems for many, the Bible appears to be the same way. We have mysterious symbols, strange signs, prophecies, parables. Friends, God did not intend the Bible to be a mysterious language. He didn't intend the prophecies of the Bible or the book of Revelation to be a code that nobody could understand. God wants you to come to the Bible. He wants you to study it. He wants you to be able to understand its ways. He would not have made it so that you couldn't understand it if it's such an important message. Amen? Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that everything in the Bible is plain and simple. It takes a little application, it takes a little effort to get to the bottom of some of what the Bible says. But when you come to the book of Revelation, it is God's intention to bless you and guide you and lead you so that you can understand what is in that book that he has put there for you so that you can be blessed and know not only the Bible, but God himself, God's character. The book of Revelation reveals his character. It reveals his plan. It reveals the final solution to this great controversy that we talked about last night. God wants us all to be prepared for what is yet to come. Turn with me to the book of Revelation, page 1174. We're going to start right at the beginning again. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. It starts right off, the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. The book was given to John to give to us so we could know Jesus Christ. Jesus himself has told us, he that has seen me has seen the Father. So the book of Revelation is revealing us Christ, which in turn is revealing the Father's character. Amen? Right? If, we're, if this book reveals the character of Christ, because Jesus has told us, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Thus, if we've seen Christ through Revelation, we've seen the character of God. And Revelation was given to us so that we can know God's plan. We can know his plan for the world and his plan to make you part of his forever kingdom. His plan for when he comes again to deliver his faithful people to glory. Remember, revelation was given by God. And it was signified or put in signs. And it also would show things which must shortly take place. Shortly take place. This means at end of time. Remember we talked about that in the first night. The signs of things to come, the signs of the end, we've established all that. So the Lord gave this book, said, you need to understand this book because this gives you the key to what to, not only what to look for, but when the choice comes and you're going to be deceived, you know who to choose. I've given you the roadmap. We continue in Revelation. Now we go to verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. And keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So it says, there's a blessing for anyone who reads. Think about that. Contrary to what many Christians say today or believe, the book of Revelation is not closed. It's not a secret book. It's not this secret Navajo code language that you can't understand. Not only is it the revealing of Christ and his character, but it's clear in verse 3, The Lord offers you a blessing if you'll study the book, if you'll come to him. So it's a revealing, and he gives you a blessing for spending time in that book. Now, the word revelation. The word revelation, in case you wondered, in Greek means apocalypsis. That's why the book of Revelation is often called the apocalypse. Now, apocalypsis does not mean the end of the world. Contrary to what people think and what the English language has translated it to, it's not what the Greek word meant. It meant an unveiling or to give light. Revelation really means that which is revealed. It's not this secret end of the world. It's, I'm unveiling you what the end of the world is going to look like. I'm giving you what to look for. God had the book of Revelation put together to reveal himself and to reveal his plans for each of us. Now, we talked about this last night. The Bible starts in Genesis with the creation of the world, remember? In the beginning, he created a perfect world, perfect people, and a perfect God. And then sin came and paradise was lost. We know the story. But most of all, I'm glad to tell you, in the Bible, Revelation tells you that this story has a happy ending. I realize it's a dark story after Genesis 3 sometimes because of the trials and tribulations of his people. But God's promises, this will end better than ever. The promise is there. One of my favorite quotes, it says, I've read the book, 
God wins. Think about that. I love that quote. I've read the book, God wins. And if you're with God, you're on the winning side. You read the book of Revelation, and all of humanity is restored to its rightful place, and paradise is regained. Now, here's the key. When I say all of humanity, I mean humanity that chose to go with God, right? Because there's two choices. So in unfolding the book of Revelation tonight, we're going to get to the very heart of the book of Revelation. And I want to review first some of the reasons why we have confidence that we can believe the Bible is God's word. Some people today believe the Bible is on the same level as the tooth fairy. And how can we know it isn't? I know we talked about this in night two. So we're going to review some of this. To begin with, as I told you, the Bible was written by eyewitnesses. The people who wrote most of the New Testament were with Jesus himself in person. They had met Jesus or they had met God face to face. The Bible was written by people who had a personal knowledge, a personal experience with God. Not by historians writing the things that happened in the past and telling us about it after the fact. They were with Jesus. As I said, the Bible was written by eyewitnesses. These were people who knew what they were talking about. Another reason we can trust the Bible is the manuscript evidence. And I've spent some time on this. There are thousands of manuscript copies or parts of manuscripts of the New Testament. I've seen pictures of a fragment of the New Testament that dates back to about 100 years after the death of Christ. The most recent, the newest fragment in the Dead Sea Scrolls dates back to the first century A.D., with many much older. Remember last night I talked about the book of Daniel being from the 4th or 5th century B.C. And if you look at the Dead Sea Scroll manuscripts, you'll see that the texts, the grammar, match nearly perfectly with the Bible you got in your hand today. Translated in different languages. The Dead Sea Scrolls contains portions of every book in the Bible except the book of Esther. Manuscript evidence supports that you can trust the Bible. Now think about this today. The very Bible you have corresponds directly with the oldest known manuscripts. We actually have access to ancient manuscripts that attest to the accuracy and the continuity of the Bible. So what about mistakes in the Bible? Has anybody heard there's mistakes in the Bible? Raise your hands, okay. It's all right. When they copied the scriptures, they were very careful to copy them accurately. Some of them as if their lives depended on it. But the mistakes you hear about, many of them are T's being crossed, I's being dotted, punctuation. Also, you have to remember, and I could do an entire series on this, on translation. Many of our words don't translate into Greek or don't translate into Hebrew. But these crossing of the T's and dotting of the I's and the, and the punctuation, these are insignificant copyist errors. Nowhere in the Bible are you going to find a mistake where it says, Jesus turned water into hot sauce. You're not going to find that. You're not going to find where it says, the Gospels were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Bob. You can trust the Word of God based upon the fact that we have mountains of manuscript evidence supporting it as reliable. 
There's also unanimity across all the books of the Bible. Continuity. Remember I talked about the interdependence of the Bible? The Bible was written, as I said, by 40 different people on three different continents across 1,600 years. Remember I talked about what it would take for us to try to write a book and each of us have a different chapter? The odds of that book even making any sense? Friends, we're talking beyond statistical possibility. For this to, with writers that didn't communicate with each other, to write such an interdependent book that doesn't contradict itself anywhere. You won't find Moses writing something in Genesis that argues with what Paul wrote in Romans. David wrote most of the Psalms and what he wrote way back then, 10 centuries before Christ, doesn't disagree with what John wrote 90 years after Christ died. There's no disagreement. Perfect harmony. The prophecies of Daniel don't disagree with what Luke wrote. And nothing anybody wrote in the Bible disagrees with anything Jesus said. Friends, this is either the mother of all coincidences, or you can say that they're divine hand in guiding the Bible. And that's what I am here to tell you. This is God-inspired. And then today we have archaeology. So many archaeologists go out of their way to try to disprove the Bible. They end up proving it the opposite conclusion that they started out trying to prove in the first place. As time goes by, more and more discoveries are being made that validate what is written in the Bible. Evidence of the various kingdoms described in the Bible are unearthed nearly every day. Tablets with writings on them referring to Bible personalities have been discovered, repeatedly being discovered. Incredible evidence about King David and the extent of his kingdom has been found recently. As I said, new discoveries are made regularly to support the Bible. Archaeology confirms you can trust the Bible. You can also look at historians, secular historians. Historians such as Thallus, Josephus, Tacitus. They refer in their writings to people that are in the Bible, characters that are in the Bible. They refer to Jesus himself in their writings. They also refer to Pilate. Christians are discussed in their writings. The things that were going on in the Christian world during their time. The secular historical records suggest you can trust the Bible. And then we have prophecy. On night number two, remember we talked about Daniel chapter two. Remember Daniel chapter two, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon? Dreams a dream that nobody could understand. Daniel goes to God. God reveals the dream. It's a great image. The head of gold, silver, brass, iron, and iron mixed with clay. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that the head of gold represented his kingdom, Babylon. And at the height of Babylon's power, Daniel said it would be conquered by an inferior power. He talked about the other kingdoms that would follow. And that the fourth kingdom would not be conquered. Remember, it would be divided. Remember divided Rome? There's not a coincidence that these metals are increasingly less precious, but harder. Each successive kingdom was more powerful, but less valuable. That gold, silver, those metals are softer, 
harder, harder, harder. They diminish in value, but they increase in hardness. And we know by going to history that those events actually happened in that order. We know that Babylon fell to Medo-Persia. And then Greece under Alexander the Great conquered Medo-Persia. And then Rome conquered Greece. And then Rome divided up into the ten kingdoms. Friends, there are many, many prophecies throughout the Bible that have been fulfilled and validate the Bible. We're going to talk about some more of them as we go through the seminar. Jesus himself fulfilled many prophecies. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 said, Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Was he born in Bethlehem? Amen. Daniel told when Jesus would die. The Bible predicted how he would die. That Jesus would die between two criminals and that none of his bones would be broken. The Bible predicted that Jesus would be born of a virgin. Which in and of itself is an incredible prediction. That's just one prophecy. The number of messianic prophecies that were fulfilled before Jesus even came, that were predicted. Anybody know how many? Let's talk about the odds first, and I'll tell you how many. The odds of fulfilling eight prophecies, one man fulfilling eight prophecies, is one in ten to the 17th power. So that's ten with 17 zeros. That's fulfilling eight prophecies. The odds of one man fulfilling eight. Jesus fulfilled 108. The chances of fulfilling 16 is 1 in 10 to the 45th power. So that's just 16 prophecies. 1 in 10 with 45 zeros. I don't even know what that number is called. When you get to 48 prophecies. Remember I said he fulfilled 108. When you get to 48, the odds are 1 in 10 to 157th power. 157 zeros to fulfill 48 prophecies. Friends, accidental fulfillment of this number of prophecies is simply beyond the realm of possibility. It's statistically impossible. And yet with all the prophecies, they proved to be 100% true. He fulfilled every one of the 108. The prophecies of the Bible demonstrate to us that we can trust the Bible. We can know it to be the word of God. But there's even a greater reason to trust the Bible. Greater than history. Greater than prophecy. Greater than archaeology. There's no book on earth that has been proven to transform a human like the Bible has. The Bible transforms your character. Transforms your life. The power of the Word of God can free addicts from their addictions. The Word of God can straighten out the most crooked person in town. The Bible fills the hopeless with hope. It puts families back together. It puts people that are off the track back on the right track. It transforms lives. And every life transformed through God's Word testifies that God's word is true. It's the greatest testimony of God's power. 
The greatest testimony, your greatest witness is your own story of what God did for you. That's the most powerful testimony. Friends, there are many reasons you can come to the Word of God and say, I believe it. It isn't blind faith because the Bible is demonstrably reliable. I just went through all the reasons why you can trust it. Archaeologically speaking, historically speaking, numerically speaking, statistically speaking. And most of all, because of the witness you see that it does in people's lives, you can trust the Bible. The book of Revelation was written by John, who wrote not only the Gospel of John, but he also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He was one of the closest followers of Jesus. He spent some of the most close time with Jesus during his three and a half years on earth. And when he wrote Revelation, he reflected in the book of Revelation what a close relationship that he had with Jesus. He mentions Jesus directly in the first three chapters of Revelation over 140 times. Truly, this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ. 140 times in the first three chapters. I want to share with you a number of ways Jesus is revealed in the book of Revelation. Turn me to Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Page 1174, if you use in Pew Bible. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. So just seven verses into the book of Revelation, John's revealing Jesus coming back to gather up his people and take them home. This is right just in the first chapter of the book. Seven verses in. The return of Jesus is talked about right away at the beginning of Revelation. This tells you you can look forward to the day that Jesus will come. That he will soon come and be triumphant. Friends, how can anybody claim that this is a secret topic? In fact, I've got an entire message about that very point. We're going to talk about, in one whole message, the manner of Jesus' return. Friends, the return of Jesus is the keynote topic of the book of Revelation. There is hope for the future, and Revelation tells us so. There is a hope for a brighter tomorrow. And you read about that in the book of Revelation. The promises of deliverance, the promises of eternal glory, are described in the book of Revelation. So when you face challenges, when you come across difficulties, when life throws its worst at you, and you wonder, can I make it through this? You can know from the Bible... That there is hope. Because the revelation tells us so. It gives you the hope that Jesus is coming back soon. And at the end of the book, John closes with a prayer. Even so, come Lord Jesus. So this book, Revelation, maligned, misunderstood, neglected. Some people will teach, you can't go near it. Don't, Don't touch that. They'll say God doesn't want you reading it. But as I said, seven verses in, Revelation presents Jesus as a coming king, a conquering king. And I say, thank God for what Revelation says about Jesus. Let's continue. Verse 13. 
In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment, down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. This is a picture of Jesus clothed as high priest. Now, why is this significant? In the sanctuary service in the wilderness, the temple service, the priest would minister between the sinner and God. He was the intermediary between the sinner and God. That sinner couldn't come to God. He had to come through that priest. So 13 verses into this mysterious book, we are reminded that Jesus is our high priest. He's serving as our high priest in heaven. He's your intermediary between the Father. God wants you to know that when you read the first page of the book of Revelation, He wants you to know that when your sins have come between you and Him, when you've made a mess of your life, when you've got off track, He wants you to know that you can always come to Him and He will never cast you out. Jesus is your high priest. Friends, there's never a need to believe that God won't accept you or take you back. Turn me to Hebrews chapter 7, page 1152. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Paul's telling us that Jesus lives to make intercession for us. He lives to do that. That's his one desire. He wants to intercede for you. He says, come to me. I will stand in your place. I will plead your case, and I never lose. Revelation reminds us that Jesus in heaven is our high priest. Now turn over a few pages to chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, page 1177. Go back into the book of Revelation, this time in chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, we're going to start right in verse 1. And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, And in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Here you have Jesus represented as two characters, two contrasting characters. He's being represented as a lamb slain and also the mighty lion of Judah. Very contradictory, contrasting characters but the same individual. Jesus meekly, humbly went to his death like a lamb. He died on the cross, giving his life so that you might live. 
The lion of the tribe of Judah reminds us that Jesus is not only our sacrifice, but he's also the one who conquered when we could not conquer. That symbol of the lion is a conqueror, right? The king, the king of the beasts we think of him as. It's a conqueror. So Jesus went humbly and meekly as a sacrifice, but he also conquered that which you could not conquer. Friends, it's a powerful thought. Now turn me to Revelation chapter 14. Keep going to the right. Page 1183. Revelation 14, verse 7. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Here Jesus is revealed to us as the creator of the world. Friends, this is significant because the chapter before in chapter 13, we'll see that the world is following after a beast, even worshiping this beast. Then in the next chapter is a call to worship him who created the heaven and the earth. So in Revelation 13, we have Satan says, worship the beast. And then in chapter 14, God says, worship the creator. Remember those two choices I've been talking about? You're going to hear them throughout the seminar. Satan says, worship the beast. God says, worship the creator. There are only two choices. This will be is significant in a time when all the world's going to worship and follow this creature rather than the creator. Now let's go back to Revelation chapter 1. 1174, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So five verses into the book of Revelation, Jesus is being presented as the Savior of the world. By virtue of his death, of his sacrifice, we find forgiveness and pardon for our sins. Friends, it makes me wonder why more people aren't reading the book of Revelation. Amen? Yes, I know there's signs, there's symbols, there's beasts, there's horns. But it's clear, this book is about Jesus Christ. Five verses in, he's the Savior of the world. Seven verses in, he's coming back soon. Thirteen verses in, he's there to represent you before the throne of God. This is just in the first chapter. A little further on, he's standing amongst the lampstands, identifying with his people. A people that had sinned against him and cost him his life. Remember Revelation chapter 3, verse 20? I've read it three nights now. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him. And he with me. Isn't that remarkable? In Revelation, Jesus said, I want to come into your life. I want to come into your heart. I want to fill your being with my presence. I want to be the center of your life. Friends, that's the story of Revelation. That's the unfolding that we're doing of Revelation. That's the entire story of Revelation. It is a story of one who offers a life for you that is beyond anything you can imagine. Paul wrote, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Think about that promise. We can't comprehend 
how glorious it's going to be. Friends, Paul is telling us that the promises of God are beyond our imagination, beyond our concept. Revelation is the story of the Alpha and the Omega. It's about the bright and morning star. The one who was the Lion of Judah and the Lamb as it had been slain. He that lives was dead and is alive forevermore. One who walks in the midst of the lampstands. Friends, Revelation, it's about the Son of God. But even more importantly, it's about what He can do for your life. It's not just a story about Him. It's a story about what He can do for you. Remember what I talked about last night. But something gets in the way of God's work in us. Well, God wants to transform our characters. Sin stops that from happening. Remember from last night, Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2? Remember it said, sin separates us from the Father. Sin can be made to look fun. But friends, I promise you, that fun brings ruin. I need to stress, sin appears fun. That's the deception, right? If it wasn't fun, if it wasn't enticing, you wouldn't be deceived. You can go out tonight and get drunk and lose your inhibitions. But there's a price to pay. People will lose their dignity. They can't remember where they are or how they got there. And when the memories slowly start to come back, they wish they hadn't done it. Regret. Friends, we're all affected by sin. Every one of us. Turn me to Romans chapter 3, page 1087. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So how many have sinned? All. And every one of us. Friends, we are all sinners and all in need of a Savior. And if that wasn't bad enough, continue with me now to Romans chapter 6. Three chapters to the right, page 1089. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And friends, we're not talking about a heart attack. We're not talking about a stroke. We're talking about eternal death. Permanent death. Final forever separation from God. And it's not because God is mean-spirited or intolerant like an angry neighbor. Wages of sin. How many people have heard that verse? How many people have read the whole verse? Let's read the second half of that. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, it's so sad that people forget the second half of the verse. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of the Lord is salvation. Remember when I talked about the character of God last night? God is love, remember? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, God is not willing that any should perish, 
but that all should come to repent. Friends, God wants none to perish. No one. None to fall. None to be lost. No one. Turn me to Ezekiel chapter 33, page 837. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? Friends, this goes right to the heart of the choice that I talked about last night. He said, the Lord's saying, I have no pleasure in the death. I want no one to be lost. I'm begging you, turn from your ways, come to me. Seek salvation, seek forgiveness, seek eternal life. God is saying, you don't need to die that death when you're separated from me. You can come to me and I'll clean you. I'll make you new. Friends, God isn't an angry, malicious, malignant, mean-spirited, vindictive God who walks around with a big mallet. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Whoever comes to me. Contrary to the deceptions that Satan has wrought about God's character, God does not wish for anyone to be lost. Friends, I want to stress this. God's heart breaks at every lost soul. Every lost soul. It breaks his heart. And Satan knows it. This is how Satan tries to hurt God. It's the only way he can hurt God. By separating God from his children. But there's good news. Good news is that the sin problem has been dealt with by Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 40 tells us, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. What Jesus is saying is, is if you just willingly come to me, you will have life. It's freely available to you. Why do you turn it down? Why do you spurn it? Now, we know sin is certainly a problem. There's no question about that. But the problem we have is not that sin exists. The problem is, is that we're not willing to come to Jesus and have him do something about it. That's the problem. Sin isn't the problem. It's our unwillingness to come to Jesus and let him fix it for us. I read recently an article about a man who died of a toothache. A toothache. The problem was he never went to the dentist. The problem just got bigger and bigger, worse and worse. He finally developed an infection which became systemic. He got so sick that he died. He didn't have much money. He didn't have health insurance. He couldn't pay for the dentist. He got sick and he died. Now you could say his problem was a toothache. But in reality the problem was that he didn't get it treated. In his case he couldn't afford to. But friends, it isn't going to cost you anything to come to Jesus. Jesus said, you won't come to me that you might have life. 
If you came to me, you'd have life. I want to share something with you tonight. God offers you a way to security that money cannot buy. Coming to Jesus costs you nothing. Not coming to Jesus costs you everything. It will cost you your eternal life. So how do we receive this gift of eternal life? How do we get this free gift? Turn me to John chapter 3, verse 16. I know most of you know it, but let's go, let's go there in our Bibles. We want to stay in, stay in our Bibles. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Friends, it's simple. We're going to talk about some steps to Jesus. A little road map or a guide. If you want a certain future, the first thing to do is believe. That's the first step. You can believe that God loves you and wants to save you through his son, Jesus Christ. You can be certain of that. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You can come to God through him. You can leave your sin behind through Jesus. You can find hope in the midst of your broken heart through Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, the Bible says we're all sinners and sin causes death. Romans chapter 5 says, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, Jesus died for every one of you. Even when you were ignoring him, Jesus died for you. Without Jesus, we are without life. But in spite of what you might have said or done or entertained, you can come to Christ knowing that he died for you. As I said, sin leads to death. But Jesus said, no, don't let that woman die because of her sins. He said, no, don't let that man die because of her sins. Let me die because of their sins. The Bible says that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Which means that before there was a sin, there was a savior. Jesus died for you in spite of your meanness. In spite of your dishonesty. In spite of your immorality, in spite of our addictive behaviors, in spite of a bad temper, he died so that you could be forgiven and cleaned up and ensured a new life. So you believe now. You say, I believe. I believe the Bible is true. I believe that there is a God. I believe that Jesus Christ died for me. I believe that. Then what? What now? The Bible says in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. God says that now that you believe, repent. To repent is to turn away from your sin. Put it away. Choose to forsake those old destructive ways. Leave them behind. That's the violent man choosing to turn away from his roughness. It's an immoral person choosing purity. The thief choosing honesty. The gambler choosing to walk away from that card table. Friends, you choose to walk away. It's a decision that you make in your mind. 
Say, I repent. I turn away. So then what? The Bible says after we believe and after we repent, then we ought to confess. Turn me to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, page 1168. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Does it say only certain unrighteousness? Does it? No, it says all unrighteousness. Friends, that's radical. Think about this. We are the people who killed Jesus, the Son of God. Because Jesus died for our sins. We are responsible for that. Mankind killed the Savior. And yet the Bible says, if you confess your sins, he will forgive you. That's phenomenal. I know people have a hard time forgiving each other for the small stuff. Think about when the person cuts you off in traffic. How quick are you to forgive? Yet God forgives us of the sins against him. Jesus says, if you confess, I'll forgive whatever it is you did. David wrote in the Psalms, you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. Friends, I promise you, he'll forgive you and your shameful past will be gone. Not only are you forgiven, but the stains are cleaned up. You become a new creature in Jesus Christ. Well, think about this. You say, well, Dan, I'm, I'm really bad. I've done some really bad things. I'm not like those Bible heroes. Well, let's talk about those Bible heroes for a second. David, an adulterer and a murderer, was referred to as a man after God's own heart. God forgave him and blessed him. Noah got drunk. Abraham lied. Peter deserted the Lord himself and cursed in the process. Paul persecuted God's people. He was responsible for the death of God's people. Friends, here's a key point I want you to leave with. Nobody deserves eternal life. None of us. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. We don't deserve it. It's a gift. It's pure love from a loving creator who wants no one to be lost. So what is this faith? Turn me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, page 941. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. But only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Notice the centurion does not use the word, my servant may be healed. He said, Jesus, you say the word, 
and my servant will be healed. I know he'll be healed. I trust you. That's faith. It wasn't, if you say the word, maybe he'll be healed, or I'll go check and see. He says, just say the word, and I know in my heart that's faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith, belief that it's going to happen, that the Lord will deliver on his promises. So, our steps to Jesus, believe, repent, confess, and then you can receive Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. You just need to open the door and Jesus will come rushing in. Now here's one of the most remarkable verses in the Bible. Philippians chapter 2 verse 13. It is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. If you've ever thought, I don't know how I can give up a certain sin then you've just found something powerful. You believe. Then you repent. You confess. And then you invite Jesus Christ into your life. And he starts living his life in you. You surrender. You say, God, we'll do it your way from now on, not mine. I've tried it my way and this isn't working. And Jesus will come into your life. And he will live his life in you, through you. That's why Paul said in the book of Galatians, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. You see, Christ will come and bring his power into your life. And you can lean on him. You must lean on him. If you want to speak decent words, think the right thoughts, talk to people kindly, get rid of your short temper, you must lean on Jesus. You must turn over everything to Jesus. When temptation comes your way, you must say to him, Jesus, I'm counting on you. Now please, come into my life. Do in my life that which I cannot do. I'm not capable of overcoming these temptations without you. Friends, as I've mentioned previously, there's not one of us that is any match for the devil. None of us. Only Jesus. And when Jesus comes into your heart, when the devil knocks on that door, You can send Jesus out to open the door. And he'll shoo that devil away. Resist the devil, the Bible says, and he will flee from you. Friends, that's got to be the best offer you've ever had. Jesus will come into your life. Forgive your past. Blot out your transgressions. Give you a future. Clean you up. And then live his life in you. Friends, there's hope tonight. The book of Revelation says so. We unfold it. We discover it's the story of a great Savior who will bring power into your life. And I say thank God for that. I want you to know that there's hope for you. And the book of Revelation says so. No hurricane there, right? In June of 2000, a 40-year-old lady named Julie was attempting a round-the-world sailing odyssey. She started a journey aboard a 37-foot sailing sloop in Aruba. Her plan was to first to sail to the Panama Canal and get the boat engine repaired. Now think about this. 
She already knew her boat was in trouble. Does that sound familiar with your life? That was mine. I already know ahead of time I got problems and I keep going out on a limb. Her companion, a bus driver, who didn't even know how to swim, had never done much sailing. Now here's another one who should know better. And not far into their journey, they realized the boat sails were lopsided, affecting their course. And then the bilge pump blew. Meaning that water that routinely collected in the bottom of the boat wasn't getting pumped out. They were taking on more water than they could get rid of. Then a storm overtook the boat. Huge swells crashed over the boat. Now it was a matter of life and death. After three days without sleep, Julie decided she needed to go for help. She was going to swim to Columbia and get help. One minor detail. Columbia was 60 miles away. Her friend had to tie her up and keep her from jumping off the boat. In the midst of all this, the boat's emergency beacon was launched and the Coast Guard was summoned. Before long, the Coast Guards of Venezuela, Colombia, Aruba, and the United States came looking for Julie. Julie's father had contacted his local congressman in North Carolina and the U.S. Embassy in Bogota, Colombia. Ultimately, Julie was rescued. Her body was covered in rope burns, and she had bitten off a quarter of her tongue. But speaking to a newspaper reporter, she said, I am just one puny person, and yet so much was done to save me. The Coast Guards of several nations, law enforcement, volunteers, rescue workers, all worked together to save Julie and her friend. The storm threatened to take her life, but a rescue effort saved her. Friends, long ago, the storm clouds of sin began brewing. There was a violent storm, and our ancestors, Adam and Eve, fell into sin. And things didn't get any better. Until today, you often feel as though you're adrift in a stormy sea. Sometimes it might feel as though the waves of trial and temptation and discouragement are breaking over your bow. As though your ship is filling with water and you're sinking fast. What are you going to do? You cannot save yourself. But I want to tell you, so much was done to save you. Friends, God gave everything to save you. Jesus came to this world to die so you and I can live. The rescue mission has been carried out. And instead of perishing, you can have everlasting life. Will you accept that life in Jesus? Will you accept it and say, Lord, take away my sins. Forgive me. I live your life in me. Friends, he'll do it. He'll do it right now. You can leave here tonight knowing that you're free. You can leave here knowing you are a child of God. Friends, I urge you, follow those steps to Christ that we talked about tonight. The rescue mission has been launched in your behalf. The Lord is waiting to pull you out of those stormy seas. All you have to do is ask him to rescue you. I want to ask you tonight, was this message clear tonight?
Amen. Please join me in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love and mercy. Thank you for the gift of your Son, without which we would not have access to heaven. Lord, we thank you so much for all the love, all the sacrifice that you've given to give us a chance for redemption and salvation. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Bible and the gift of this revelation for which shows the true character of your love and your Son and all the events, all the intercession that you've done for us. And Lord, we ask you now, please, send your Holy Spirit. Touch these hearts and souls. Knock on that door to their hearts. Lord, I know that these friends and these brothers and sisters, they're yearning to be close to you, Lord. Please, continue calling them as they search their hearts and souls. Lord, I ask you now, please, keep us all safe. Touch their hearts as they study, as they contemplate, as they pray to you. Lord, we lift you up on high for all that you've given us and all that you promise us. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.